0: Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we want to look at the first 14 verses. Uh, once we get uh, used to it, that's kind of our, our cue that uh, it's time to uh, be seated. So they're helping me out a little bit there. Matthew chapter 12, 1 through uh, 14. Uh, Christ is Lord of the Sabbath is what I've titled the message here, and and let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our study together. Lord, again, we thank you for your Word, uh, the Living Word. And uh, we pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that uh, is helpful for your people. Help us to grow in grace. And Lord, if there's anyone that has not yet come to faith in Christ, we we pray for their salvation as the word goes forth as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as uh, you note on the overhead, uh, this is uh, the outline of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which has as its theme, Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to chapters 11 and 12, which uh, present the rejection of the king. The king's been presenting himself to the nation of Israel, and now the moment of decision has come for the nation, and they are rejecting uh, their Messiah, their Messiah king. A good part of Christ's earthly ministry involved presenting his messianic credentials to Israel. Uh, His miraculous kingdom signs were undeniable, And they were so voluminous as to be overwhelmingly convincing. His miracles were kingdom miracles. That is the nature of the miracles. Uh, They were kingdom miracles. And they were therefore signs showing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah King offering Israel the kingdom on the condition of repentance. That's the condition. Uh, John the Baptist prepared the way. Uh, Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Christ followed in that Uh, ministry of John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Alas, Israel largely did not repent, but instead persisted in the legalism of their Judaistic religion as taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. The indifference of the people and the antagonism of the religious leaders characterized Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Well, as we follow the ministry of Christ, we see a rising hostility on the part of the religious leaders against Jesus. First, they had a major problem with Christ's claim to be able to forgive sins. We saw that in chapter 9. After all, only God can do this. So what is Jesus doing claiming that he has the ability to forgive sins? Well, he just so happens to be God. That is the issue. This was exacerbated by the fact that Jesus associated with tax collectors and sinners. I could see sinners, but tax collectors? Really? Just kidding. And then we find in our study today that not having any regard for their legalistic Sabbath rules, claiming that he is Lord even over the Sabbath, well, that absolutely inflamed them. There's a thematic play on words here in the context. Jesus promised rest to all who come to him, as we saw at the end of chapter 11. The Hebrew word translated Sabbath means rest. God intended the Sabbath to be a time of rest, but the religious legalism of the Jews turned it into a burden. Jesus offers spiritual rest in contrast to the Jewish legal system, the legalistic system, which really corrupted the Sabbath rest intended by God, as we see here in our study today. When you think about the Jews, they had really two major signs that identified them as God's people, the Jewish people, the special chosen people. They had two outward signs that really identified them as a people. Circumcision and the Sabbath were these two very significant Covenant signs. To be a Jew was to be identified with circumcision and the Sabbath. You see, circumcision marked the Jews as the covenant people who were the descendants of Abraham. Keeping the Sabbath was a sign that they were the covenant people of God as seen in the Mosaic law. Thus, the Sabbath was deadly serious in the eyes of the Jews, and rightfully so, properly understood. They all knew that in the Old Testament, the violation for breaking the Sabbath was the death penalty. Therefore, the rabbis, because of the seriousness of the Sabbath, tried to protect the sanctity of it by building a wall of rules and regulations around it. But this really became their undoing. The issue of the Sabbath became Sabbath legalism. And this becomes a major point of contention between Jesus and the religious leaders called the Pharisees. And the first occasion for this ongoing conflict over the Sabbath is seen in our study this morning here in Matthew 12, 1 through 8. <clears throat> Let's pick it up there. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry. And began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they they said to him, Look, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So this is the setting. It's the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are are passing through these grain fields, probably either wheat fields, barley fields. And uh, as it is the Sabbath, they began to be hungry. They were hungry. And so they began to pluck a few heads of grain and eat them. Now, this was not stealing. The law instructed people to leave the edges of their fields so people passing through would have something to eat. You do understand that there were no fast food places in these days. Uh, this kind of was the fast food place. You just you know plucked a few grain and, and would eat it as you passed through. But it was, it was perfectly acceptable to do so. Uh, here in Deuteronomy, it says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So, hey, okay, you can pluck a few uh, you know, grains to eat, but, but no, uh, no harvesting. <laughs> so the problem was not that they were eating out of these fields. The problem, according to the Pharisees, is that they were doing work on the Sabbath day. Now, these Pharisees were obviously dogging Christ's footsteps, looking for anything they could find to criticize and and thereby discredit him. They had a sinfully critical spirit, which is never a good thing. And here they thought for sure they had found something. They had gotten something on him. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful. There's the issue. It's not lawful to do this on the Sabbath. However, As we will see, Jesus never actually broke the law. The disciples were not actually guilty of breaking the Mosaic law. But really they were breaking the extra regulations that the rabbis had put in place. The the Pharisees and the scribes saw the Sabbath, as I say, as the sign of the Mosaic covenant, which they took very serious, at least in a legalistic sense. And to flaunt disobedience to the Sabbath in their minds was to desecrate the entire Mosaic law. So that's how serious they're taking this. And again, in order to protect it from being violated, they had added many other rules and regulations. In addition to Scripture, which they saw as kind of a protective fence around the law, around the Sabbath, that would help guard against violating the Sabbath. Here's a basic rule before God. Do not add to God's revelation. That results in man-made legalism. And people like to do this. Uh, Okay, God's got his rules. Okay. But now they add extra rules. Well, that invariably results in very serious error. God doesn't need any help in communicating or adding extra regulations to holy living to what he has already said. As I say, that inevitably results in burdensome legalism. In the MacArthur Study Bible, in the uh, concordance under the the heading of baptism, it has a number of different headings. And one of those headings is, scriptures supporting infant baptism. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, that's interesting. What are those scriptures? Well, he had the reference there, Proverbs 30, verse 6, which says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Anytime we add legalistic rules to God's word, we make ourselves out to be a liar before God. And that is most serious. It is interesting to study church history and what has happened in the church Uh, Lots of adding to, lots of legalism. Uh, Some forms of professing Christianity add tradition, all kinds of tradition. And we certainly could point at the Catholics, but there is a lot in all of our circles here. Uh, Some are more grievous than others. Uh, When you add sacraments, when you add rituals, when you add the Apocrypha, pretty soon it gets to the point where it is so corrupted that it violates the very message of grace that true Christianity stands for. Well, Jesus often rebuked the Pharisees for adding their traditions to the Word of God as legalistic requirements for the people to live by. It's always good to say, do you have a verse for that? okay, you're standing on this like it's a hill to die on, but is there even a verse that really defends it? What the law of Moses actually forbade was the harvesting of grain on the Sabbath. You see, harvesting is different than merely eating breakfast, right? Yes. (laughs) But legalism takes it further than God ever intended. The Jewish rabbis had come up with 39 categories of work That were forbidden on the Sabbath, with all manner of subheadings under those 39 categories. Three of these categories were threshing, plucking the grain, harvesting, rubbing it in your hands, and then winnowing, separating the grain from the chaff by blowing it away. There you have it unlawful work on the Sabbath. That's what the disciples were guilty of, according to the Pharisees. A little footnote on the Sabbath, a lot of confusion, uh, even in Christian circles. It's kind of like Sunday is now now the Sabbath in, in some people's minds. That's not true. A little footnote on the Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day of creation week, as we find in Genesis 2. The word Sabbath, as I say, means rest and is related to the Hebrew word for seven. And it became one of the Ten Commandments. You got the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments is the core of it. And it served as a reminder of God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was a weekly reminder of the children of Israel's deliverance from a Egyptian bondage. However, and this is an important note, The Gentiles were never commanded to keep the Sabbath. Nine out of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament in conjunction with the new covenant that we are now under. But not the Sabbath command. It's the one command that's not incorporated into the new covenant commands. An abiding principle, I think, remains in terms of rest because Jesus said the Sabbath was made for the good of man. It's good to rest on good to have a day off. I like Monday. It's Sabbath to me, (laughs) at least sometimes. Anyway, but in the New Testament, in the early church, a transition took place from Saturday to Sunday. I refer you to children's moment. We are now under a new order, under a new covenant, and therefore the church began to assemble on Sunday in honor of the risen Christ instead of meeting on Saturday. Now, if we want to meet on Saturday, we can do that too. We can meet on any day of the week. But we have that precedent in Acts, in the early church, that they began to assemble on Sunday in honor of the risen Christ, who was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. We're under no legalistic obligation to keep the Sabbath. And we have a verse for it. I knew this was coming. Yes, we have a verse for it. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In summary, note these three things about the Sabbath. Number one, there was no command to keep it prior to the Mosaic Law. Number two, The command was never given to the Gentiles. I mean, this is part of the the covenant with Israel. And number three, it is specifically said to be a sign of God's covenant with Israel. Those three things. Here is Jesus' response to the legalistic, critical spirit of the Pharisees. Verse three, but he said to them, have you not read what David said, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which, is, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, I love this about Jesus. When the devil did his best to tempt him, Jesus took it right back to Scripture. Over and over, he said, It is written, it is written, it is written. This is how he defeated the devil. When the Pharisees were critical, he took them right back to the Scripture. Rightly dividing the word. For Jesus, the answer was always in the word. And he consistently went right back there. It was all about properly understanding and applying the scripture. This was actually a very pejorative and insulting statement that Jesus made to these religious leaders. We know it was holy and it was right because that's all Jesus ever did. But it was a pejorative response. You understand, to ask these religious leaders, have you not read, was insulting, right? Yes. Of course they had read. I mean, they were the experts in the book. They would have taken this question as very demeaning as it challenged both their integrity and their authority. Now, it should have jarred them out of their self-righteous, self-centered wisdom, especially since they had no answer for it. Jesus always stumped the self-righteous, self-wise, legalistic leaders. And I love that about Jesus. The self-wise were always stumped by the all-wise one. Jesus really was the all-wise one because he, as he will say, is the Lord. The Lord over all, even over the Sabbath. If anybody's an expert on the Sabbath, it's him because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Pride gets humbled before Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus thanked the Father that he has hidden his truth from the self-proclaimed wise and the prudent and has revealed it unto babes. Well, the incident about David that Jesus here references is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And the context is this. David was fleeing from Saul, and he asked to eat some of the consecrated bread from the tabernacle, which was only lawful for the priest to eat. Technically, David should not have done this. However, David, in this case, believed that preserving his life and the life of his men was more important than a mere technicality of the law. And guess what? It seems that Jesus agrees with him. And I don't know about you, but I'm going with the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, it's good to note that nine of the Ten Commandments were what we might call moral law. But the Sabbath law was more ceremonial in nature which is perhaps one reason it is not repeated in the New Testament, not incorporated into the New Covenant commandments that are given to us. In Matthew twenty three twenty three, Jesus spoke of the, quote, weightier matters of the law as being justice and mercy and faith. You see, the Pharisees were bogged down in all this minutia. And he says, yeah, okay, but the weightier matters relate to justice, mercy, and faith. And what I see Jesus teaching is that human life is a very high priority before God. A higher priority than the technicality of the ceremonial law. That's the spirit of things here. The Sabbath restrictions were never intended to apply to deeds of necessity. The Sabbath is intended by God was to be for man's benefit, not his detriment. There's a spirit of things here, and God takes that spirit of things into account. And he looks at the motives. By recounting this incident, Jesus showed that human need supersedes the ceremonial law of the Sabbath. It's a new concept to these legalistic Pharisees. Very hard concept for the legalist. You see, the legalist is all about rules. Rules above people. That's the spirit of the legalist. And the legalist wants rules for everything. Certainly applying to everybody else. Maybe not to myself, but certainly to everybody else. And the legalist, therefore, has a hard time with the spirit of mercy superseding a technicality of the law. Now, Let me give you an illustration. If you are out in your car and you go to pass a slower moving car and suddenly you see an oncoming vehicle approaching you, what should you do? Not go over the speed limit and die in a head-on collision? At least you kept the letter of the law by not going over the speed limit, right? You died obedient. Very good. Stupid, but very good. Wrong! You should value life above the technicality of the law and speed to get around so you will be safe. Now you say you should never get yourself into that situation. Okay, okay, you're in that situation. Floor the thing, would you? I'm in the car. There's a little bit of sanctified common sense here. The value of human life supersedes technical aspects of the law. That's the principle he's driving home. And legalists have a hard time with that. Some of you might have a hard time with that. Uh, I hope not. But that is Jesus' whole point here. And one not well received by the legalistic spirit of the Pharisees. And he continues... Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? What? What? The priests are profaning the Sabbath? And are blameless. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Now I doubt very much whether these learned Pharisees had ever thought this deep about this issue. You see, if you're a legalist, you want 100% consistency with your legalism. I mean, that's the nature of being a legalist. And legalism is all about man-made laws. It's not legalism to follow obediently the law of God. That's obedience. Jesus here presents an Old Testament conundrum to these Pharisees. You see, the law established the Sabbath. But it also established a duty of the priests on the Sabbath, which technically required the breaking of the Sabbath law because it required work. You see, technically speaking, the priests broke the Sabbath every week because the maintenance work at the temple required it. They had to change out the consecrated bread for a new batch. They had to present a double burnt offering and so forth. And yet Jesus says these priests in profaning the Sabbath which is his words, not mine were blameless. You see there were exceptions to the letter of the law. That's what Jesus is pointing at. The legalist doesn't like that idea of any mercy exceptions. Sabbath rest was not legalistically Absolute. The priestly duties for the sake of worship were not forbidden on the Sabbath, but indeed required. In the case of sacred duties of the temple, those sacred duties overrode the sanctity of the Sabbath mandates. In that sense, the temple was shown to be greater than the Sabbath. The temple takes precedence over the Sabbath in that situation. And then Jesus makes this application saying, yet I say to you that in this place there is something greater than the temple. Okay, if that's true, that the temple duties took priority over the Sabbath, now there's even a greater reality on the scene. You see, the Jews had an almost idolatrous, mystical view of the temple. We see this back in Jeremiah. Where it says, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For the Jews, the incantation, the temple of the Lord, was was almost like a, a magic mantra. In their view, the sacredness of the temple trumped everything else. So it was understandable that the temple was exempt from sabbatical regulations. But now Jesus says, okay, there's something even greater in play than the temple. There's something even greater on the scene, which I take to be, in context here, the ministry of the Messiah. The sense is this. If the ministry of the temple overrode the Sabbath, how much more so the even greater ministry of the Messiah. I mean, if the priests, because of their Holy responsibilities could violate the Sabbath. How much more the ministry of the, of the Messiah? Now, some think the greater thing refers to the Messiah himself, others to kingdom truth being presented, but I, think, I tend to think it most probably refers to the ministry of the Messiah. And there are several reasons to think this. Number one, the word one is in italics. It's not a part of a literal translation. Number two, the word greater is neuter in gender, which would indicate something greater is in view rather than a person. And number three, the parallel thought is a contrasting of the ministry of the priest with that of something greater, which in parallel would be the ministry of Christ. Uh, I think Stanley's to saint gives a good summary statement here when he says, if the ministry of the temple superseded the Sabbath rules, how much more does the work of the Messiah overrule the Sabbath? I think that's what we're talking about. And then he gets to the heart of the matter, verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Here was the heart of the problem, pun intended, Legalism tends to be merciless. It shows no grace. And you know what? That is not like God. Even the law of Moses had a place for mercy. Legalism doesn't. And the quote here is from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, which says, I desire, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. To, to really know the heart of God and to function accordingly, that's what's really important. This is the second time that Jesus has quoted Hosea six six to these Pharisees. The first time was back in Matthew nine thirteen. The word mercy in Hosea six six is the Hebrew word hesed, often translated as loving kindness. God is concerned about compassion over ritual. God is interested in the heart of people that are in tune with his heart, not just religious exercises and rituals that really sometimes trample over people. The rabbis had succeeded in turning the Sabbath into a burden instead of being the blessing, the rest blessing as intended by God. Mercy takes into account the motives behind what is happening and not merely cold legalistic rules. The new International Bible Commentary says, the quotation of Hosea 6.6 6, is the denial of the right to judgment until the motives behind an act are known. Obviously, God takes into account, Jesus took into account, the motives behind what was happening. Normally, it's not right for David just to show up every Sunday and say, hey, it's time for us to eat breakfast here. That's not normally, but there was, a, there was a special circumstances, special situation. God takes it into account the motives in such a case. Holman Christian Study Bible says, Jesus taught that Sabbath law was overridden by priorities such as, one, genuine human need, number two, worship, the sacred duties at the tabernacle, Number three, acts of kindness related to mercy. And that leads us to the climactic statement in the whole text this morning, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's the bottom line issue in the whole matter it's all about authority. Lord is is an authority word. Who has authority? Who's Lord? Who's Master over the Sabbath? Who gets to decide what the fine nuances and what violates the Sabbath and what doesn't? Well, Jesus, just Jesus as the Son of Man, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man is a Messianic title, going back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. By the way, Son of Man was Christ's favorite designation of himself, as recorded in the Gospels, appearing about 80 times. Son of Man presents the Messiah as the great representative of humanity. And yet he has divine characteristics, such as having dominion over all and an everlasting kingdom. This is no normal man. Yes, he is man. But he's no normal man. He's the Son of Man, a messianic designation. You see, as the son of man, Jesus is of the order of man. As a son of God, Jesus is of the order of God. He's both in one person. He's man, fully man. He's God, fully God in one person. Most unique person in the the universe. He's a God man. This is the essence of what it means to be the Messiah. Now, when he says that he is Lord even of the Sabbath, the word Lord means master, one who has authority over. And as the son of man, Jesus is master over the Sabbath. Now you have to understand as a Jew, <laughs> the gravity of this statement is just hard for us to comprehend. I mean, who is master over the Sabbath other than, you ready for this, God himself. It's a statement of Deity. Because only God has absolute authority over the Sabbath. Every Jew knew that. Every Jew knew the Sabbath goes back to Genesis chapter 2. God created the Sabbath. He ordained the Sabbath. He regulated the Sabbath. He commanded the Sabbath. Who is Lord of the Sabbath? God. Jesus now says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That was a profound statement, a statement of deity. As Lord of the Sabbath, no one is more qualified to interpret the true meaning of the Sabbath. He's the one who, who sets the deal up. He's the authority behind it that controls it, that determines it. So when Jesus says human need does not violate the Sabbath, I don't know about you, but I know for me that settles it. Uh, When Jesus says sacred duty does not violate the Sabbath, that settles it. He he is Lord of the Sabbath. It's a powerful statement, an absolute statement of authority, of the authority of God. ESV study Bible, Jesus does not challenge the Sabbath law itself, but rather the Pharisees' interpretation of it. As Messiah, Jesus authoritatively uh, interprets every aspect of the law. And here points out the Pharisees' blindness to the actual intent of the Sabbath to bring rest and well being. It is the Son of Man who rules the Sabbath, not the Sabbath that rules over the Son of Man. Jesus is totally in charge of the Sabbath because of who he is. And this is the key point that Israel was missing. Who is this special one who's on the scene? He's the Lord, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He determines the rules, and he lived completely consistent with what he ordained. It was the Pharisees who were inconsistent. And at the end of the day, it wasn't even so much about Christ's violation of the Sabbath that greatly offended the Pharisees. Rather, it was his claim to have authority over it. It was his claim of absolute authoritative lordship. And in the end, this is the great issue the religious leaders could not tolerate. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was only a picture as anticip- uh, which anticipated the rest that is found ultimately in Christ. In his completed work on the, on the cross, that's where we find rest ultimately spiritually. This is what Christ's invitation, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's ultimately what it looks forward to. This completed rest that we now find in Jesus Christ under the new covenant. What a glorious truth. Our rest is found in Jesus. You say, well, my rest is found in keeping all the rules. You'll never rest. Rest is found in Jesus. He's our rest. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. At this time, you can all go to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. Spiritually. For he who has entered his rest. It's his rest. But we enter in. How do we enter in? By faith. In Jesus Christ as our Savior. He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You see, we now rest in the completed work of Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath rest and he is Lord of the salvation rest that his people now have entered into. And note those that enter into his rest have ceased from any and all works of their own in trying to save themselves, in trying to find rest for themselves. It's not through doing, it's through trusting that we enter into this rest. We rest in His finished work, not ours. And we rest in His rest simply because it is His rest. We don't provide rest for ourselves. He has done it all for us. That's called grace. Verse 9. Change gears just a little bit. Verse 9. Now when He had departed from there, He went into their synagogue. Now, the parallel text in Luke 6 makes it clear that this did not take place on the same Sabbath, perhaps a week later, uh, or on another Sabbath, uh, whenever it happened. But thematically, it follows. And it follows sometime later. Verse 10 continues, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying... So they come to Jesus, and, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? that they might accuse him. The word withered means dried up, shriveled, or useless. And note the scribes and the Pharisees are very proactive here. Here comes Jesus in, and they're running Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? we just kind of like to know. Might have said, well, what, why are you asking? You think I might do something like that? Uh, it's almost like they expect Christ to heal on the Sabbath, and they're trying to set him up so that when he does it, they will accuse him of doing something wrong, like work. You remember, they had all those, all those categories. You can't do this, you can't do that. Now, I find this interesting because it shows that even they did not deny the, the legitimacy of his healing ministry. They're just quibbling about the details of when and when it should not happen. No law in the Old Testament actually forbade helping a person medically on the Sabbath. There was no law against healing or performing acts of mercy. However, the rabbis and the Pharisees had all kinds of laws against helping people. You see, the rabbis generally permitted attempts to heal people on the Sabbath, but only, only if the person's life was in jeopardy. Otherwise, are you ready for this? It was illegal to tie a bandage, to set a broken bone, or to administer medicine. Some rabbis even went so far as to say it was wrong to even pray for the sick on the Sabbath. Because praying itself involves a little effort, you know. How's that for providing pastoral care? Where's the love in that? Nothing like a good Sabbath rest, you know. Oh, I see your broken bone over there. It's broken in about three places, but you'll live until tomorrow. We love you. No wonder. No wonder Christ said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This legalism doesn't provide any rest for you, but I will. There's no rest under this kind of legalism. Obviously, this man with a withered hand did not have a condition where his life was in jeopardy. So it was high drama with this challenge before Jesus. They were actually challenging the early assertion that he is Lord over the Sabbath. And what would his response be? Well, he was always up to the challenge, and here's what happened. Verse 11, then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? Who out there among you has just one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Now, the Jews commonly accepted that it was permissible to rescue one of their own animals that fell into a pit on the Sabbath. Wouldn't want to lose that poor creature. This is something they would all do. And he challenges them, which of you wouldn't do this? Well, logic says if they're willing to help a sheep, why could they not help a person who is much more valuable, has much more value than a sheep, Therefore, Jesus posed this question and answer. Verse 12. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The logic of Christ here was impeccable and irrefutable. You can almost hear the deafening silence. And there was silence. We read in the cross reference here in Mark chapter 3 verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. Every Jew knew that people were created in the image of God and therefore of much more value than a mere sheep. It was beyond argument. I mean, you have to be an evolutionist not to get this. And the Jews didn't believe in evolution, you see. Jesus, therefore, gave the logical conclusion. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's a conclusion. What a revolutionary concept. You mean we can give medical attention to the guy who's got a broken arm in three places? Yes. The Lord of the Sabbath, the one who's in charge of the whole thing, says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's always lawful to do good. In fact, the entire premise and purpose behind the Sabbath law was for the good of mankind, not their detriment. They were missing the spirit of things. In Mark 2, 27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The legalists had it backwards. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. I love that. I wish I'd have been there. It was great. Jesus the Lord is ever in control of every situation. He commands the moment. He took charge. But before the action of healing took place, Mark makes the notation that is not recorded in Matthew. But notice what it says before the healing. And when he had looked around at them with anger. Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Before Jesus dealt with the man and healed him. Before that, Jesus looked right through these hard-hearted people with anger. There is such a thing as a righteous anger as Jesus displayed here. And few things grieve the Lord more than hard-heartedness that doesn't care about people. After giving them an intent look of anger. And I believe that was piercing, piercing. Jesus then commanded the man, stretch your hand. He didn't say, well, would you be interested? And we commanded him. He's the Lord. Stretch out your hand. Lord of the Sabbath, he's, he's taking control of the situation. And immediately he stretched it out and was completely restored instantly. He didn't say like modern miracle healers, it may take a while. <laughs> no. And really it's a miracle of creation. To make a withered hand instantly whole was basically to take that which is dead and give it life. Speaks of his creation power. And since it was the Creator who initiated the Sabbath in the beginning, as seen in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, this miracle demonstrated that indeed Christ was the Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed it and then He proved it in this miracle, which He performed on the Sabbath. You know, Christ's miracles were always for a purpose. Sometimes people think today, well, miracles just happen for, for, in a vacuum. There's no, there's no real sign value to it. It's just, well, God bless me. and this, but miracles in Christ's day, performed by him and then later by his apostles, always had sign value. There was a message being communicated. In chapter 9, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, and then he proved it by healing the paralytic. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Here Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he proved it through this creation miracle, if you will, performed on this man with a withered hand. Thus it served confirmation of his claim to be Lord over the Sabbath, and that as the Son of Man, He is indeed the true Messiah. Verse 14. What's the response? Revival? No. Verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against Him how they might destroy Him. This is telling. Jesus is doing good on the Sabbath, but in response to His doing good, the Pharisees left the meeting and went out and plotted against Jesus how they might destroy Him. How ironic that in their theology it was wrong to do good on the Sabbath, but it was not wrong to plot the death of someone who is doing good. You know what? That's some kind of twisted depravity. That's what that is. Here they were so concerned about a mere technicality, a rabbinic technicality, not even backed by Scripture, about violating the Sabbath. But at the same time, they had no compunction about plotting murder on the Sabbath. Legalists, by the way, are always grossly inconsistent. Mark 3 4 is clear that when they challenged that when challenged by Jesus, these religious leaders were silent. They had neither scripture nor logic to refute Jesus, but at the same time they refused to repent. This shows a deep seated heart problem. They didn't need more evidence of his lordship, they had a heart problem. As it says in Mark 3, 5, they had hard hearts. The problem with having a hard heart is that it, be, it can become irremediable as we see later on in this chapter in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely no answer, no hope for a heart that is hardened to that point that absolutely refuses to repent no matter what, no matter the evidence. And because of their influence with people, it is especially tragic when this is seen in the lives and hearts of religious leaders. Jesus restored, the Pharisees plotted to destroy. What a contrast. Jesus preached mercy, the Pharisees preached legalism. One of the great evidences for the truth of Christ's ministry was that he was, that he was truly of God, was that he went about constantly doing good. That's God-like. You know what, the, what devil-like is? The devil is out to destroy people. Goes about like a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's out to destroy. Jesus never did that. He went constantly about doing good. As it says in Acts chapter 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's what the devil does, oppress people. Jesus frees people for God was with him. Well, in contrast, the devil is always seeking to harm people. In contrast to Jesus, he seeks their destruction. No wonder Jesus said in John 8 to those Jews who wanted to kill him. It's interesting, in John 8, they were initially claiming to believe in him. But then he said a few things, and now they wanted to kill him. And he said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Indeed, people are known by their fruits, just as Christ said. What well, we're talking about, the main theme in our text, and our study today, is the lordship of Jesus. The key verse is verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord. He's Lord. This is the whole issue. You've got legalism versus lordship. In fact, I've written that in my Bible you know, in conjunction with my subheading there. Legalism versus lordship. These religious Jews were all about Legalism. Refusing to accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, that becomes the issue. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, a lot of people, they're into religion, legalism, not so much into Jesus. That becomes the issue. Indeed, people are known by their fruits, just as Christ said. I like this from Lorna Simcox. She writes, Many years ago, my husband's friend Ken Campbell lost his 18-year-old daughter in a car accident. Ken pastored a church here in South Jersey, and Gwendolyn was a student at Word of Life Bible Institute in New York. She had come home for the wedding of a friend who worked at the Friends of Israel headquarters and had gone to Walmart to pick up a few things. As The car she was riding in emerged from a parking lot. Another car slammed into it and killed her. My husband visited Ken. Understandably, everyone was extremely upset. But Ken told Tom something I'll never forget. I teach the sovereignty of God, he said. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But now I've come to love the sovereignty of God. And then she says, Nothing can give an individual more peace than wholly trusting God who is in absolute control of everything. Let me ask you, who is this God? It's Jesus. He claims to be Lord over all, even Lord over the Sabbath. The one in whom our soul finds true rest is the all-sovereign one. This is Jesus, the Lord. He is Lord of the rest simply because he is Lord over all. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about laws and legalism. It's about Jesus, the Lord, who is gentle and lowly in heart, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. Our Lord is not a harsh taskmaster, but a very loving Lord who truly has our greatest good in mind every step of the way. Legalism is burdensome, harsh and unloving, Jesus, our Lord, is the very opposite of this. We want to be in tune with the heart of our God. Yes, when he speaks, that that has absolute authority. But there's mercy with the Lord. What does Micah 6.8 say? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see what? The issue here in the whole context, the greater context here, even in Matthew, it's all about the Lordship of Christ. The gospel of Matthew, uh, you know, we, we love Matthew, emphasizing who Jesus Christ is to the Jewish people. He's their Messiah. He's their Messiah, the Lord. And the Messiah is the Lord. The gospel of John, the one gospel, the one book in the Bible that was written so we might believe and believe and have life has as its overarching theme, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Begins with that first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is Jesus. He's the communication. He's the Word of God. Builds to the climactic illustration of the Gospel of John. You know it. Doubting Thomas. He said, I'm not going to believe in the resurrected Christ unless I see Him for myself. A few days later, Christ appeared to Thomas. And what happened? When Thomas saw Jesus, he said, My Lord... And my God. And what did Jesus say? Thomas, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. The other main theme in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is Savior. John the Baptist introduced Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, the God-provided sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world, builds to a climax. John chapter 19, Jesus dying on the cross. And what's the last thing he said? It is Finished. He paid the full price for our sins as our Savior. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins, according to the Old Testament scriptures. He was buried. He did it all. He died for our sins. He was buried. And then He rose again as Lord over all. That's the gospel. You know, we're having a service for uh, Rose Gibbs this afternoon. I prayed for Rose for many years. My relationship with her goes way back many, many, many years. Barb uh, Kerber was sharing with her mom year after year. and We were praying. We just were never quite sure about Rose. But in recent weeks, it was clear that that Rose had come to make a a true confession of faith, at least as far as we could tell. And uh, Barbie told me what she did with her mom is, as they would talk time after time, she made it very personal, very personal. Mom, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you personally? Mom, what did Jesus do for you personally? Who is he to you? What did he do for you? And she listened intently in those last few weeks in a way that she had never listened before, at least according to Barb's testimony to me. This is the ultimate issue. Who is Jesus to you? He is Lord over all. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord and Savior to all those who truly believe on him. Let's stand and have our concluding song, and then I'll close in prayer. will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Forever I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. of the Lord forever I will sing. I will sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Hey, and while you're singing about it, let's live it. Let's live out the mercies of the Lord as well. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and mercy extended to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, two great issues before Israel. We'll get to it in Matthew chapter 16. Who do the the people say, I am? A key issue. Who is Jesus? Well, we see He's he's Lord. He's Lord over the Sabbath, meaning He's Lord over all. He's the Creator God. We believe in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit but as the Son of Man, has, has this kind of authority. What an amazing reality. And Lord, we, we thank you for your, your teaching us about the Sabbath. You, you are the ultimate expert on this, as you are Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, Lord, it is true, even today, so many get wrapped up in a legalism, in a legalistic spirit, losing sight of the true heart of God, which desires mercy, not just uh, religious ritualism and legalism. It's not about that. It's about who Jesus is as Lord. As Lord, and as we follow the story through, as Savior. And Lord, if there's anyone listening that has not come to a true saving faith, I pray that they'd find that rest in Jesus. You invite us. uh, Come to me, and you will find rest. I'll give you rest. Lord, we thank you for the rest that is found in you, and your finished work on the cross. We must come on your terms recognizing you for who you are as Lord, as our Savior. Lord, have your way in every heart and every life. Dismiss us now uh, with your blessing, and, and may we go forth shining as a, as a bright light in, in a dark place for the glory of yourself. Uh, give us a good, fruitful day for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. By the way, if you want to talk, I'm up here. I'd be glad to talk with you further if you're not sure about where you're at with the Lord.